podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca is with a professional cricketer who's played over four different decades. Gareth Batty. I don't know what my job title is. I suppose player coach at Surrey, but coach rather than player now. I always say Batty is one of the most pro pros in cricket I've ever met. In this episode, we talk about his family history in the game, Yorkshire spin, Brian Lara's effect on him, how he tries to coach players, and how he's kind of had everything English cricket can throw at a spinner happen to him in his career. We recorded this during the lunch break of one of our commentary stints, so you get a special bonus at the end of Darren Goff coming over to tell Batty that he should actually be on air. Your father played second 11 cricket for Yorkshire and he ran a cricket store. Yes. Your brother had a professional career just before you, maybe about five or six years before you came through the system and he played for Yorkshire. So you were pretty much properly a a child of cricket, aren't you? Yes, very much so. From earliest memories, I had a, a red tractor when I was a kid, plastic wheels and stuff. And we had like a big concrete road at the side of the it was only to get to the clubhouse at the side of the cricket pitch and i reckon my earliest memories were zipping up and down when dad was playing first team cricket and either pre-game or lunchtime he would then be throwing balls to me on the outfield so he was having a full day not just playing the game he'd have me either side of it and then afterwards obviously so a bit like you another player coach (laughs) yeah oh oh, yeah yeah. and you know i suppose near the end of his working life we had the shop and it worked quite well because then he could do his coaching, which he did at a couple of schools. And then he had his own stuff at Bradford and Bingley. But he was on the Yorkshire Academy as a full-time coach for probably 10, 15 years. Uh, he ran Yorkshire under 16s for 20 years. And then it changed age to 17, which then I think he only maybe did a year or two years. But um, yeah, I mean, cricket is, it runs through the blood. Brother's also an off-spinner. And also can bat a bit, maybe not bat quite at your level, but he's, he's not a number 11. He could hit the ball. Was he the reason you picked up off spin as well, or was it just dumb luck? No, no, it was it, dumb luck. I'd never even thought about it, if I'm brutally honest. It was just, I couldn't tell you how it ever came about. It's just You couldn't I, bowl fast. Well, yeah, I, 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 I always wanted to bowl fast, and anybody that knows me knows that on the field I had that mentality, possibly. But my dad bowled leg spin. Yeah, I mean, my brother's seven years older than me, so... Uh, the age gap meant that certainly when I was sort of really getting into cricket, sort of 10-ish, uh, well, sort of 8, 9, 10, you know, he was away playing sort of under 15, 16, 17, and then professional sort of cricket. So it wasn't like a lot of people where you say, no, you're playing in the back garden with your yeah. brother because the, the age difference was quite significant. So I probably didn't even know that he was an off-spinner and, and I was at, at that point. It was I was probably always wanted to be a bit more of a batter, really, I suppose. I enjoyed bowling as well. You leave Yorkshire like quite early on. Is there a reason there? Was there another frontline spinner or? No, uh, Richard Stemp, who had been involved with England A, was the primary spinner at the time. And then he had Craig White that turned his hand to bowling a bit of spin before he really went for the fast bowling stuff. Michael Vaughan. And then there was just a smattering of the younger lads. And Yorkshire are never going to struggle for types of cricketers. It was just basically, uh, it was never really going to work for me. I had two years on the staff. So it's sort of 15, 16, I was with the academy and did one year at Yorkshire Academy. And then uh, I had two years on the staff. And I was very, very young as a player, as a person, as everything. I'd not, you know, I, I, I 
brought up in a, a brilliant village, but pretty wet behind the ears and, and probably a little bit insular in some ways. It was almost the best thing that happened to me that Yorkshire early on sort of said, well, you're not going to play first team for a, for a year or two because of your development, so let's call it a day sort of thing. And I was very lucky. I was playing for England under the 19s and Mickey Stewart picked the phone up straight away and sort of said, what do you, what do you reckon to, uh, to Surrey as a long-term development project? One thing I find quite interesting with your career, I mean, you do go back a long way, like a ridiculously long way. What did we work out recently? We worked out you're now in your fourth decade of professional cricket, which is a phenomenal effort. But because of that, you were basically there when cricket was turning professional. And I know there were, there's been professionals in England, but the sort of the proper professional stuff, you were there at the beginning there, all the way through to now where, you know, England's arguably the most professional cricket country. Back in those early days, how much support was there for young spinners? Oh, no. It was kind of be seen, don't be heard, and as and when the ball spun, make sure you got a wicket or two. But it was very much about just don't go for runs was the mentality. And it, from what I understand, it still is to an extent at, at Yorkshire. Because of the weather conditions, it's very much a fast bowler, seam bowler, swing bowler world up there. And I suppose that was part of the beauty in, in what happened to me because I wouldn't have been playing the game had I have stayed around that part of the country. So coming down here sort of flipped that switch for me that um, spin would be a bit more seen as a weapon and seen as a, uh, some productivity for your team. Uh, it was never, ever seen as that at Yorkshire. I'm pretty sure it isn't now, if I'm brutally honest. But it, you dictated to by the conditions that, that are put in front of you. What about coaching? What sort of advanced co- I'm, And I'm not talking about someone like Mickey Stewart. I'm really talking about proper spin coaching back in your early days. Or was it pretty much you had to work it out on your own? No, a lot of it was with Dad. He ran his sort of nets on an evening. So Monday to Monday. Pretty much every night there would have been something going on. I remember probably up until 15, 16, I would be amazed if I would have gone more than two days without some kind of cricket. In the summer, I would have played for all teams going. In the winter, I played my rugby. A couple of my best mates were rugby players, so I dragged them into cricket in the summer. And the nets, obviously, in the winter, I I was there the whole time. So no, Dad, definitely the biggest influence on every facet of cricket, and even now moving into the coaching stuff. Huge influence. But I I suppose the earliest days of spin bowling would have done a little bit uh, with Eddie Hemmings when I was going through the England setup when Mickey Stewart was running the sort of development up to sort of 21. He had Eddie Hemmings involved a lot and I, I still see him now every now and again at Trent Bridge and we sort of talk about it. Norman Gifford was part of that whole setup as well. And then once I'd sort of started evolving a little bit more and understanding that, right, first class cricket is something that I could possibly do when I'd moved to Worcester, Ashley Mallet was very good for a, sort of a year or so. Tom Moody was great. He said, look, I can offer you some knowledge, but I don't know the intricacies. I've got a mate that's going to be over. What do you reckon? And and whenever I needed that sort of counsel, as it were, he was around for that sort of early 2001, 2002. But a lot of it is you suck it and see yourself. And then the the reason why possibly the longevity at 29.30 when I went back to Surrey, Ian Salisbury, without any shadow of a doubt, the best person I've worked with for spin bowling, and he was able to unlock things and knowledge that are built up for years and understanding my hip control and speeds and angle of seams. And I suppose I had my best years, maybe two years after working with him all the time for it all to fully sink in. But by that point, I'm 32, 33 and the best years, definitely. And I, I felt like I was pretty much the best around, but I'm going to play for England at that point when you've been out of it for a while, age but, comes into it. But that's the interesting thing because I just had a look at your record. You get picked quite early on in your yeah, career. Really. 
uh, get thrown into the Brian Lara game in Antigua and, you know, do you do an early tour of Sri Lanka maybe as well? Yeah, I've done Sri Lanka before that. Yeah. Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. Did we do South Africa before West Indies? I think we did. But it obviously didn't play South Africa. And then the Lara game. So... At that stage, there's nothing really in your record that suggests... You can tell you're a young spinner. It's a bit up and down. There's some good years, some good performances, but there's, you know, a lot of bad stuff. Your record really doesn't start to get good probably until your late 20s. Yep. Uh, and I know you've told me in your life you've matured a lot at that age as well. And now that's the point where England is saying, well, you're too old, yes. essentially. Is that just a thinking problem within English cricket? We see Don Best right now. I'm not saying that there are a lot of 30-year-olds out there who should be playing ahead of Don Best, but you do see there's like throwing a 21, 22, 23-year-old spinner in. They're probably going to be better when they're 28, 29, 30, when they learn about hip control and square seam and all those sorts of things that you have to learn as you play more cricket. Yeah, I mean, you only need to look at Swanee that was similar, thrown in young and then discarded for a period of time. And he would have gone through very similar things to what I'd sort of alluded to there. Monty's probably the only one from a spinning point of view with England that as a youngish man and just sort of continued that sort of path consistently until sort of early 30s, he was sort of finished. If you look at someone like Panasar, essentially he's got a natural great test delivery. So you can throw that in, whereas if you look at yourself or Swanee or Bess, you know, those sorts of players... None of you guys have a natural test delivery. You, you're very good spinners and, and you've got other things. So you could see with Panasar that you probably want him in the side at 21, 22, so he can learn for years. But for the rest of the guys, there's a different kind of thing. And you and I have talked about this a lot. The idea that you essentially you want to learn on a pitch that spins. Yes. And then quickly, once you've got two or three years of being confident and knowing what you're doing, then move to a pitch that doesn't spin. And I think, I reckon that should be the case for Ashwin and for Lyon and, you know, almost all the best spinners in the world. You could see how that would work. But the thing is that if you were thrown in and you're having to learn at test match level yep. and you run into Brian Lara, say, there's no way that can't dent you as a human being. At the time, I didn't feel it had done, you know. I remember coming back after that trip and uh, we were going somewhere in a pre-season and Tom Moody was kind of like, you know, you're all right, everything all right. And I was like, should play the test match? I'm sweet as a nut. <laughs> I remember at the end of the test match, the boys were like, look, you should get your shirt and get Brian to sign it. I was like, no chance. Do one. Not interested. This is a, a game from a personal stats point of view. I'll forget and, and move on. I don't, not interested. And they nicked one of my shirts and got him to sign it anyway. And I threw it in my bag and I picked out testimonial year 20 years later and, and apart from all the ribbing and the odd quiz question that comes up it's discarded for me I was able to put it at the back of my mind but if I looked back on it I'd go well I'd basically hardly done anything for the best part of six weeks pre that game we had had all the series and cleaned up and Harmy was magnificent and Fred was brilliant and it was the emergence of that 2005 team that was coming together and I felt part of that as a, as a squad player and I didn't really think too much of it because we knew the pitch was going to be flat as you had. We knew it was going to be lots of runs scored and I didn't really read into it. And it wasn't until at the end of 2005 when I'd started that summer because Joe was still injured and I'd played the two test matches. I'd not bowled or batted at Lords or something. I just fielded because we got loads of runs and wasn't needed with the ball. And then I got chucked the ball second innings at, at Durham Riverside just because the game was done and they were saving the, you know, I don't know, can't, can't even really... But at the end of that summer, that really hit me for six, that I wasn't part of that England setup for the rest of the summer. And then moving forward, I didn't get picked for Pakistan that winter. And that knocked me for six for two or three years. So maybe that was the delayed effect of the Lara thing. But 
I put it down more to that 2005 and then not being around for that period of time when I needed to still be in the mix, like we see with Jimmy Anderson, was still in and around the mix for that early, mid-20s, which then allows him to be the guy at 30, that everything falls into place and he, he ends up being the greatest of the great. And you've just got to keep yourself in that mix. And that doesn't happen for spinners, really. And I think that seems to be something that England is trying to change. I mean, I think that even though they've made huge errors with the way they've treated Don Bess, and part of that is COVID-related, which yeah. is beyond their control as well. Yeah. But I think they tried to hide him from Rohit Sharma on pitches they thought Rohit might, you know, go after him. But they have tried to treat him as well as possible. That wasn't even English thinking before, probably before Andy Flower. So, you know, even with some of the better teams like 2005, realistically, it wasn't thought of as you've got your 20 players and this guy's going to come in and out. And we know that this guy... It was literally, are you good enough to play now? And if you're not good enough to play now, disappear. And so they probably missed out on your best years because you just weren't treated correct. I don't know about that. I, I think it was sometimes good to be out of that mix as well because you had to think on your feet a little bit more and, and maybe some of the things that have sunk in over that period of time wouldn't have done had I still been in that environment because you sort of move on from day to day and you're always thinking, well, if I'm playing here, I need to be ready as opposed to having that six months of a winter where you take a step back and say, right, here we go. What am I going to do to get better? How am I going to use some of the information I've picked up, some of the experiences to get better? And even though I, I wasn't with the full England party, for the next two or three years, I was going around the world playing air cricket. Mm. So it wasn't until sort of 2008, 2009 that actually I had a little bit of reflection time. So I had a 10-year block where you picked on England Academy through to playing in whatever facet with England. Eight, eight years, maybe, where you have to be in the moment of understanding that I might be playing tomorrow, so my output needs to be the main concern as opposed to, right, I'm at point A, I need to get to point D, and I've got a period of time to map out how I'm going to put all these things into my game. And I was afforded that later on, maybe in life. Do you think that's now something that younger cricketers are probably, it's part of their development? I would hope so. Certainly from the transition of going into coaching, I'm trying to, with our younger players, I'm trying to give them as much information as possible, almost bombard them with information so that it's like overkill, so that hopefully they retain some of it now, but at some point we will revisit some things and it will drip feed in. We're, we're basically trying to accelerate learning. We're trying to make things in a more condensed period, but actually understand that you're trying to look after them and nurture the experiences because the experiences are becoming less in the modern world but the experiences have, have changed from playing lots to maybe training a bit more. So it's kind of, can we get those experiences within our training to then put into our skill sets to make us better players on the pitch? And I suppose Washington Sunday shows that in the test match that we're watching now, the fourth test match. You know, he's, he's played a handful of first-class games and he's batted like a guy that's played 50 test matches. You know, it's beautiful. And that is due to good off field, so by management coaches advice when you are in a training environment. White ball cricket, and I say white ball cricket, but when you started your career, you are that old, but <laughs> you would have actually started limited overs cricket with a red ball. Yes, yes. But white ball cricket, because you're of that era, just as it's becoming a big thing in England, it probably become a big thing the rest of the world five, ten years before, but England was still not quite there with white ball cricket. Well, certainly not there with actual white ball cricket. How seriously did you take the limited overs cricket when you started your career compared to what a young kid would now? It was secondary to an extent. 
My first stint at Surrey, it was my way into the team, but I was batting then. So I was batting sort of opening or batting at three. So I loved it. It could go in, go in, bit of crash, bang, wall up. And then if I bowled a bit, it was kind of more on my terms that I would be bowling when it was suiting me because we had Sacklin and Salisbury who were magnificent bowlers uh, at the time and I was learning off them. But it was then when I, I moved to Worcester and played my first proper year, 2001, I think it was, that then I understood, hang on a minute, this white ball stuff, it's very secondary to the red ball. So I was purely concentrating on Monday to Saturday, red ball, red ball, red ball, trying to get better with my bowling, which I had a pretty good year, 50-odd wickets, I think my first year, whatever it was. But my batting took a bit of a hit because I was concentrating so much. But white ball was, it was something we did on a Sunday or a random different day of the week if it was a day-night game. But it was certainly not my focus and, and, and certainly not maybe how youngsters would look at it now. That is for sure. I mean, you still don't take T20 cricket that seriously. I did look at the stats recently. You are still one of the most heavily bowled off-spinners in the world. Probably because there's not a lot of specialist off-spinners and you're one of the few that are out there. But you still don't take T20 cricket that seriously. But I think that's the beauty of T20 cricket. If you have a skill set over the period of time that I've been around the game, I very much back myself to outthink or out have an idea of what I'm looking to achieve. So if you don't take it too seriously, you never actually get to the end of your mark where you, you feel any pressure that we would talk about commentating or you would observe uh, people taking the gas, as it were. If you don't put too much on it, then you never really get into those situations. I feel it's a mentality that works for me. But it, it marries up with, I think, understanding the batsman, understanding grounds, understanding surfaces, and very much being confident in what my skill set could be. And it is that sort of breath of fresh air stuff. And I love it. I love playing it. I really do. But I would never measure myself whether somebody thought I was a good T20 player or not. You play age group cricket. You play at Yorkshire, where it is fast bowler friendly. You come to Surrey, which is one of the better pitches for spin. You go to Worcester, which is one of the counties that everyone sort of ignores. You play for England very early. You then play for England very late. Your batting helps quite a lot in your career. And your, as you said, your white ball cricket as well. I always refer to you as a pros pro because you've kind of had the most professional career in that you know what it's like to be the gifted young player who gets promoted early, but you also know what it's like to be the county guy on the grind and no one remembers your name anymore. Like you've had almost everything. Plus you come from a family of cricket, you know, with all those experiences and because you are a spinner, how would you be guiding the next, I mean, it's a horrible thought, but how would you be guiding the next Gareth Batty if some poor bugger out there happens to be another Gareth Batty? Being, with everything that you've had, what can England cricket learn from Gareth Batty's very long career? I think we've got to understand that youngsters now do not have time on their side that maybe I was afforded to have the longevity and have the pitfalls and the odd spike in the pitfalls and so on and so forth. So I, I'm talking about trying to accelerate the learning, which hopefully I'm following through from a coaching point of view now to hopefully have that 10 to 12, 15 year career that you're not going to have that through experience of playing as much as you used to do. So it would be very much, if you're a spinner, definitely, definitely, definitely work hard on your batting. Give yourself an opportunity to buy yourself some time. Give yourself the opportunity that the selection panel go, yeah, but he can bat at eight or nine and get some useful runs. So we're going to stick with him for two or three games. Buy yourself some time to be in the team when the ball turns or when you ball well and you get lucky and there's a few bad shots or when just by time. If you're always in and around playing, you give yourself a chance for the outcomes, which then ultimately 
you're going to have a better career than I ever did. And I think it's very difficult to, and this is the thing I'm trying to process now. How do you get somebody that matures later to mature younger, which was fundamental in my career? I understood far more and, and was a far better player at 30. How could I have flipped that around and said that happened at 22? And why would you have had a, a young commentary? A young man. Is it that? Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. Thank you.